Welcome to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, a brilliant guest expert helps us tell new stories about old and sometimes odd media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. He has been actively growing mold on the pages of a favorite old volume from his own collection in an attempt to analyze and understand the microbiomes of old books. <laughs> and my co-host is Sarah Marty, director of the Bolt Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Ever the overachiever, Sarah read the entire elementary school library before she finished fourth grade. <laughs> Today, we speak with Fenella France, Chief of the Preservation Research and Testing Division at the Library of Congress. So a couple years ago, when this podcast was just an idea and a Google Doc, Fenella's name was at the top of our list for potential guests. We really wanted to have her on the show because in the world of archival preservation, she's a rock star. She not only oversees the preservation of U.S. cultural heritage objects, but she's also a hands-on researcher who develops innovative approaches for studying and saving the most precious and fragile items in these collections. Lest we be accused of hyperbole, she truly is an amazing individual. She's worked on the fibers of the Star-Spangled Banner, that is, the original U.S. flag that inspired the national anthem. She's worked with objects in the 9-11 memorial. She's done spectral imaging on the Declaration of Independence. She's investigated the backing paper on the Magna Carta. It's unbelievable. <laughs> what I knew from having collaborated with Fenella in the past and what was confirmed in our conversation is that she's not only a fantastic researcher and scientist, but she's also such a great teacher and science communicator, someone who understands the art of communicating complex ideas to a broader audience. She's basically exemplifies the core values of our holding history program. We should really consider putting her face on our <laughs> logo. The two of you could talk all day about fibers and destructive sampling, and I could geek out with her about the preservation of sound recordings. Really, it was just so much fun to talk with her. The scope of her knowledge is immense. Yeah, you compared her to Sherlock Holmes. I think that's right. I, I, I was wondering, Sarah, did you find any relation with your own work when we were talking to Fenella? Well, I'm an organizer, personally and professionally, so I was interested to hear about her emphasis on organizing the library's cataloging practices. People think that it's just a tendency or a preference or something, but she makes it clear how having things organized is not extraneous. It's a vital part of the research process. You can't compare things, mm -hmm. collaborate on things, or present things if you can't find them. She said... You can still be creative while being organized. I just love that. And, and she's so focused on linking these organized archives in ways that allow global interconnectedness so that information can be accessible across institutions, large and small. I'm almost afraid to ask because I know you love this interview so much. But as you think back now, what stands out to you as the most memorable part of this conversation with Fenella? Please pick one. You know that's nearly impossible. Uh, but I'll say that what I most appreciated from the conversation was the bit that aligns with some research and writing that's really mattered to me recently, uh, what's called biocodicology, or the study of biological information that is stored in old books. And that's actually the way that Fenella and I first met and collaborated. Rare book researchers are realizing that there's so much data in the pages of books that we can't see with the naked eye. So archives around the world are in the midst of important conversations about scientific testing, about how to best care for irreplaceable cultural heritage objects while also allowing cutting-edge biomolecular research. 
Finella and her team are very much at the center of global conversations about destructive testing and predictive testing and innovative archival analysis. I can't imagine a better, more brilliant person playing the important role she plays, that of studying, testing, preserving, organizing, and future-proofing our country's national treasures. So let's get to it, our conversation with Fenella France. at home, would you mind introducing yourself uh, and just telling us sort of who are you and what do you do? Sure. Uh, Fanala France, Chief of Preservation Research and Testing Division at the Library of Congress. If you detect a slightly interesting cadence, um, it's a deep southern accent. I'm originally from New Zealand and uh, <laughs> have a, a fantastic team of uh, 20 preservation folks uh, from PhD chemists, preservation specialists, people with forensics and art science and art history backgrounds. Uh, so we are a unique component within the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress is the Copyright Office and uh, it was established uh, when Jefferson gave his library to, to basically say anyone in Congress should know more than just law and X. They should know about all of these topics, whether it's social science and humanities and biology and geography. A, a person of Congress needs to know all of these things. And so it kind of evolved from that as the, and essentially is the library of the people. So anything at the library is owned by any person who is in America. And we are delighted to have a, a preservation directorate. Uh, we have conservators in the conservation division. We have reformatting and uh, preservation services. We have collection services who collect and maintain the general collection areas and preservation research and testing, which is my division, where we do the science and the analytics and kind of add value of what's hidden in our collections and how do we best preserve all of those different types of materials. Thinking about the division where you work specifically, how would you describe that space? Is it, are you surrounded by books, by high-tech machines, some combination thereof? Like what, what is the division of research and testing? Great question. I wish we were surrounded by and included uh, books. Uh, we essentially have three lab spaces. Uh, the What we call the upstairs lab, everyone says it sounds like Downton Abbey, is the uh, <laughs> chemical and physical testing lab where we do the testing on reference materials, which is why we're going to be talking about the archive soon. And that's so we can do destructive and predictive testing. Our downstairs lab is where we have um, non-invasive techniques where we can actually look at collection items. So we use the predictive testing in the upstairs labs to do destructive testing on reference materials, non-collection items, and we correlate that with the non-invasive techniques. So we have everything from size exclusion chromatography, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, Fourier transform infrared, uh, so we do infrared techniques, a lot of spectroscopy techniques, multispectral imaging, uh, scanning electron microscopy, a lot of microscopy, kind of any technique you would think to see in a chemistry or physics lab, we have in those spaces. And it's, uh, as Joshua knows, it's, it's kind of cool. What I love about what you do is, in one sense, it's a kind of reading that's not that different from any other reading. Like anyone else, you're just processing the information that's legible on the page of a book. Except that what's legible to you is quite different. It's not just words, but dust and microbes and mold. When I visited with you at the Library of Congress, 
though I think I was most surprised to learn that your division is also collecting and preserving this whole secondary archive or sub-archive. I'm not actually sure what to call it. I, I wonder if we could talk about those secondary collections that you use to serve the preservation needs of your primary collections. Absolutely, Joshua. And so the collection that serves the collections is called CHARM, the Center for Heritage Analytical Reference Materials. <laughs> that's, so, <laughs> that's a terrific acronym, by the way. <laughs> I, I decided that my European colleagues get to do cool things, Persephone and all sorts of wonderful Greek god. <laughs> I had to do something that was slightly in their league. So, <laughs> so I felt like, because what I really wanted to get away from is it's not just library materials, it's for all cultural heritage institutions, because we all have the same types of materials. And essentially when I, where I started back in about 2007, 2008, when I first came to the library, I realized that a lot of the work we needed to do to really support and be proactive in preserving our collection was to do predictive testing and have materials that replicated what was in our collection but that we weren't experimenting on the actual collection items and so even with a lot of the new techniques I wasn't comfortable enough after years of seeing damage many years later of using those techniques without having first extremely tested those uh, and intensively investigated what the potential was so I realized in fact we needed to start building that up some of you all out there may have heard of the Barrow Book Collection, which was collected by William Barrow in the 1950s, 60s, and he tested a thousand books from 1500 to 1900. We have that collection. Yeah. One of the most interesting segues and introductions to charm for new, new uh, PRTD staff is getting them to understand they can actually cut a page out of a book and do something to it. Yeah. I still struggle with that, <laughs> but that that's really allowed us just to build up. So it started from, you know, the, the Barrow collection. Um, we've had a lot of challenging questions with early sound recording materials from wax cylinders mm -hmm. to shellac discs. So we have those uh, that are not collection items that we can do treatments on and understand what that ha what happens with that. We have pigments uh, that we have been collecting in colorants. We now have a staff member, Cindy Conley and Ryan, who has been recreating historic recipes of historic colorants and pigments. So we now understand why is this color on a 1300 map looking this way? Oh, because they made it with this formulation. That means if we're going to treat it or conserve it or stabilize it, we need to understand that. Uh, through to one I know, which is dear to your heart, Joshua, which is her block, who is a political cartoonist for the Washington Post, and the conservator uh, at the time, um, Holly Kruger, she actually took went to collect it when it came to the library and picked up a selection of his pens and pencils and paper. So when we realized we were having challenges with fading of these cartoon collection items, we actually could recreate with original materials with the different pens and figure out which of those ballpoint and uh, felt tip pens were the ones that were fading. So, okay, let's digitize those ones first before others. So it's been incredibly um, helpful for not just the productive testing, uh, we can do accelerated aging um, on it to see what might happen, is that treatment good or not? We can 
fully characterized, we can use it for a training resource and we can share it with colleagues who might want to do testing in their own institutions. Just an incredible detective story. It's very Sherlock Holmes of all the things that could be there in the way of being able to get to the actual item. It, it is really a forensic deep dive. I, I tend to refer to it as object object or document archaeology because we're digging under the layers and, and actually kind of going backwards like okay this is where we are now but what caused what happened to this lovely thing <laughs> to get it to this point and that's where this this archive allows us to try different treatments do different aging experiments and go okay right this was clearly exposed to light um years ago when i was working on the star spangled banner i did some of i actually started creating my own little archive of uh, modern materials because there was a big debate about uh, a lot of the damage you know what what did it come from and we could show that it really hadn't been flown that often because most of the damage wasn't from changes in some of the light sensitive amino acids it was it was heat so it was it was really interesting sort of what you can extract out when you can do destructive testing on non-collection items and i wonder what's the process of managing that collection you have other work that you have to be doing i mean you you are the research and testing division but really you're also creating an archive like do you have acquisitions folks who that's their main job I wish we did. So um, <laughs> the, the first part of that was realizing that um, I would go into the room where we had that and I would see a little note from so-and-so. I, I took these down to the downstairs lab and it would be dated November 2012. And this was four years later. And I suddenly yeah. realized, oh, where, where, who? Oh my God, they don't work for us anymore. Where is that? So we started an entire process, which was actually creating a three- level barcode of the item, the shelf, the cupboard. And then if we took a sample from that, it would be a subsample of that. So we could link any testing back to the actual collection item. It's it's opened up so much. Uh, we recently did some work on a Magna Carta. We wanted to look at the backing paper. I'd recently asked one of my staff to collect another, uh, a whole ream of different types of paper uh, backing materials. And we actually had what was supposed to have been used as the backing on the Magna Carta. So we could compare that just to see, okay, what condition was it in? Had it degraded? What was it looking like? And staff have increasingly become excited about how much we can learn and how much we can predict uh, yeah, yeah. from that. I love this word you've used a couple of times now, predictive testing. To be able to do this predictive testing on less rare items so as to avoid destructive testing on unique, irreplaceable cultural heritage objects. And I wonder, is there a network for sharing this information with other collections who might benefit? So that's a, an incredible um, question. And we have charm and we have charmed Charm D. So Charm D I love it. is the digital platform. Um, yes, okay. We are still working on that platform. Um, we, through a, a recent Mellon funded project, we've really looked at how we can extract the raw data and make that data set available and then keep mm -hmm. adding new data. Um, we haven't quite gotten there. There's a few IT challenges uh, internally, but that is where I'm working towards that we're public domain. Any item, any information I collect, I want to be available. So someone in a small institution who doesn't have the privilege that we have can look at this and go, oh, okay, that image looks similar 
to that. Okay, mm -hmm. I might have this problem. Oh, here's a simple way of, of how we follow through. Right. And as you noted, you know, that what if we all have our individual systems, we all have our own databases, our each campus has their own database. It's really hard to share information and it sort of doesn't live beyond whoever created it. Um, so it's just interesting to hear about how you're trying to create a tool that could be more accessible for institutions and individuals beyond the Library of Congress and how that could have a really positive impact on the field. Yeah, and I mean, that it really comes back to the fair data principles. Can you find it? Is it accessible? Is it interoperable? Is it reusable? There's so many incredible archives out there that aren't reusable because no one thought about the format. But can we talk about destructive testing for a moment? Can we like what? <laughs> What is our uh, sort of ga gauging our um, tolerance for uh, destructive testing, destructive analysis, what the, the, the rewards versus the risks for, say, really important documents? And, and um, how, do, how do you see that, that, that debate right now? Because it feels like there's a little bit of a shift, even with the stuff that we, you and I have been doing at the Beast of Craft. We can learn more if we can go a little deeper. Is it worth it? When I first came to the library a few years ago, there was a lot of hesitation from the curatorial side because straight to your point, things had not been explained or inclusively and in a, mm -hmm. in a, mm -hmm. a, a manner that was allowed everyone to be discussing the same thing. So I started with the multispectral imaging because that was clear we weren't doing anything to the item which translated through to curators and geography map going, well, if you, you know, and like, okay, we can give you 80% of the information, but if we need to do that extra 20%, we need to take a sample. And I still remember, uh, we're looking at a Ptolemy Geographia from 1513, and the curator, after we took a tiny, on the tip of a pinhead, you know, something to look, do X-ray diffraction with, and um, they're like, well, is that enough? I mean, I can't even see where it came from. Um, and like, that, <laughs> Do, do you want to take more? I was like, no, 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 that's all we need. I, I gave a um, presentation once and someone said, well, look, Fenella, you know, if we cut the corner of the document, the rest of it's still there. So, you know, what, it, to us, that's not destructive. And I said, well, imagine if that was the Gettysburg Address. They're like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, so there's that <laughs> level of what does destructive mean, but also this sort of information that you can get out of it. So I think understanding that more thoughtfully my, my background is in, in music, and uh, I've been able to access digitally the archives of the music division for the Library of Congress for a number of projects and work with my students. I'm wondering, thinking of that music division and all of those incredible, um, very fragile uh, pieces of sound recording, what does that preservation look like? And what does the history of audio, audio technology look like in your archives? A wonderful question. We work very closely with the National Audiovisual Conservation Center. And strangely, we, we call anything from wax cylinders modern, modern material. Oh, <laughs> modern wow. Material. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Which is probably a bit weird <laughs> when you think about it. Um, but, but one of the things you probably have heard of IRENE, uh, another acronym, stands for Image, Reconstruct, Erase, Noise, etc. One of the challenges is, I'm sure you've, the machines that were used to play these are not always still available. So how mm -hmm. can we be innovative and really proactive and find ways of capturing these recordings before the material itself degrades? And that's what Irene has allowed us to do. Um, we do, So we work a lot with, is, are there non-invasive ways through imaging the surface to capture the sound off of this disc or this wax cylinder um, through to the, the flip side, 
you asked about preserving. So for wax cylinders, in fact, um, we they were cracking badly and no one knew why. We tried everything. Um, first of all, it was like, of course, usually most materials are sensitive to, to humidity and everyone thought mm -hmm. it was them being transported. So suddenly we're like, oh my goodness, wax cylinders don't like temperature. They're fine with mm -hmm. humidity. So it's, it's kind of a combination of one, what can we capture before we lose it? And mm -hmm. to in terms of the preservation, but but also knowing that you can't always save everything. I was thinking about the the materials that you're working with, right? You have these these uh, collections that you can then produce, you know, test. You could test a, a cylinder to see how it how it's crack. But <laughs> uh, what about all the digital stuff? I mean, is this does this fit into the research and testing division, or is that end up being a whole other division? Really good point. So we started probably in the 90s, early 2000s, uh, because there were challenges with CDs, DVDs, looking at storage media. Mm -hmm. And so that is something we look at in terms of the, the digital material on the storage media. And I've been closely involved in terms of digital preservation. You know, what are those levels of preservation? And I think people don't think about the fact that digital uh, media storage is just the same as if you think about you know early printing in, in the 1850s to 1950s we've got acidic paper uh, yeah. same issue and, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people I mean I, I remember talking to someone once and they said but it's all right I've taken it off a thumb drive and I put it on a hard drive and I said mm, how many copies do you have no it, it's on there I'm it's fine I'm like mm, no you've still got the same problem um it is a good, so it occurs to me that like then we're getting to this place where traditionally we think about storage and preservation, right? The Library of Congress stores these items, you know, on its shelves or wherever, brings them to you for you know research testing, some sort of preservation, conservation, or, or, um, and where do where do these things actually where are they stored? Where where is the digital file stored? So a lot of people assume it's on the hard drive and it's fine. Um, the the basic philosophy is. We have uh, backups, um, content transfer system, so it goes on to uh, an external location. Uh, it's on two different types of materials because even storage media, whether it's tape or cloud, it's, you need it in a different format. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's in different locations. So a little bit of the locks, lots of copies keep stuff safe component, mm -hmm. but um, always different location, different material that it's stored on. Mm -hmm. and then constant checks to make sure that there's integrity of data. So it's a little bit like doing the survey in the stacks of, oh, wait a minute, I've got some mold. Um, you're just checking the fixity check. You're checking the checksum. Um, what is my material okay? Yeah, okay. What a nightmare it must be to be an archivist and inherit all the dead laptops with all the different systems that each individual has of how they save things and title them or don't. Um, and what a what a what laptop archaeology is going to look like for people who are working in archives and trying to decipher where information is mm -hmm. and how it's been saved. So, um, well, actually, Sarah, back to your point before about sharing of knowledge and making it accessible. That's something I've been a bit obnoxious with, I would say, with my staff. Um, I realized um, now a project proposal must list the the file 
acronym. Uh, we need to know where it's going to be and who, and mm. that everyone adopts that before the project because we've had to try and file rename after the project, and that frankly is not fun. And I just you know, or people go, oh, I saved them as JPEGs, and I, I smack my forehead. I'm like, you what? Um, you know, so, <laughs> but a lot of this, you know, back to your point, Joshua, a lot of this knowledge of digital materials and file formats is not just basic knowledge. People don't know, and it's no fault of their own. They just are not taught that. Do you bring this, so talking to you, you know, you're very organized in this way. You think like a librarian about the way, Typically, we'd think, oh, here's here's a scientist who helps the librarians. You're very much organizing, creating catalogs, or creating ways of accessing, storing, and, and reaccessing information. Is, is that was that? Um, do you have training in that in the past? Has it has it been as a, as through working with libraries? Um, are you just an incredibly organized person? What, what's... You could see the floor of stuff that I haven't <laughs> done. You'd know. That, but I, I would be in a very, very moderately controlled chaos. Um, I think part of it has been working with projects over the years or trying to get to previous projects and realizing there's this astonishing wealth of knowledge and information that has been lost. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. forced me to go outside my, I just want to do this, to we've got to actually structure this because we can still be fun and creative but we can actually do it in a, in a good way. Um, I think I mentioned when you were there, Joshua, that one of the ways we've started being more effective uh, and more efficient in the way we analyze materials without taking away the fun is we've, I created the GO team where we take four to five instruments, portable instruments, and everyone at the big, we, we have a project meeting beforehand. We agree on the file acronyms. We, we have an image of the object and where we're going to analyze. Everyone follows the same process. It goes dum, 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 dum through all the different techniques and then each person writes their section and bam rather than six months to write a report we can be done in two to three weeks and that has I think helped people realize that you can still be creative mm -hmm. while being organized and my last question is one that we've asked all of our guests and I'm just interested to hear sort of your take on it um, what is the future of research archives I think it's going to become predominantly important uh, as people Globally, we're starting to talk about materials we have, uh, particularly with the ICROM initiative, we're realizing, you know, we're not all alone. There's all of these amazing collections. One of the things we've been thinking about a lot is the, not just the discoverability, but how we link these archives. So if I know that someone's got this incredible collection in Florence, and I'm like, wait, but I have some of these materials, I want to link these two together or do a different type of research, we're realizing that we haven't been very good about being proactive and promotional about really thinking about the significance of what we've got because everyone thinks of it as, oh, you got some reference things, you're just gonna do some like, you know, testing on them. Actually, it's an incredible resource. And I see the future of global interconnections where I can go onto this register and go, wow, Sarah's got this cool collection of, mm -hmm. of wax cylinders and we can reach out and connect and share the information. So I think it's adding value to what we've got, realizing how much that helps us with the physical preservation of our collections and the, the new educational component uh, and training component of, of these collections. Thanks so much to our guest, Vanilla France. We covered a lot of ground there. 
As always, listeners, you can find more of these conversations in our episode guides, which contain links, citations, images, and more rabbit holes you can fall down. Find episode guides for all our shows in the show notes or on holdinghistory.org. Each episode ends with The Bookish Word, where student curators tell the story of a weird word from the history of books and media. This week's bookish word is hieroglyph. Today, we observe so many pictures and symbols that we associate with specific words in our lives. For example, if you see two golden arches connected together to form an M, what's the first word that comes to mind? Most likely, you're going to say the word McDonald's. Just as we associate two golden arches with McDonald's, the ancient Egyptians used hieroglyphs as pictures to define certain words, phrases, or syllables. My bookish word is hieroglyphs. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, hieroglyphs mean a figure of some object as a tree, animal, etc., standing for a word and forming an element of species of writing found on ancient Egyptian monuments and records. The word hieroglyphs first came to use in the 1750s as a new and more modern word of saying geroglyph, which has the same meaning as hieroglyphs. Researchers and historians have been able to decipher what some hieroglyphs mean. Still, it's been difficult for historians and researchers to define what every hieroglyph represents. This confusion in defining certain hieroglyphs has led to another meaning of this word, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as a piece of writing hard to decipher. In the 1875 book, Songs of Two Worlds, author Lewis Morris writes, I set him the task to decipher the hieroglyphs, which are mine. In this case, Morris defines hieroglyphs as writing that is difficult to understand. Even though hieroglyphs are not used today, we still see how hieroglyphs have massive impacts on our life in media today. Brands, logos, sports teams, universities, and emojis would still not be t- technically considered hieroglyphs, but they still have a similar function. These examples take pictures or symbols to trigger our brains to think of a word related to the image, just like hieroglyphs did in ancient Egypt. That's the end of this chapter. I'm Sarah Marty. And I'm Joshua Calhoun. Our theme music is by Luke Levitt, and our associate producer is Tom Van Camp, who gets caught in the rain every time he bikes to one of these recording sessions. The Bookish Word was conceived, created, and recorded by Nate Hendon. Support for this podcast was provided by a University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant and Friends of UW-Madison Libraries. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org.